to 1.37 p.m.'s Live from the Bar Cart. A look into the style, culture, strength, and grind of the modern-day man. Franco Noriega, thank you so much for joining us on Live from the Bar Cart. Thank you so much, man. Uh, happy to have you here. A guy with uh, so many talents and so much success in his life. We definitely are excited to talk to you about your story. Um, let's start at the beginning. I know that you originally are from Peru. Tell yep. me a little bit about growing up in Peru and, and your childhood in Peru. Um, well, so I was born and raised in Peru, mm-hmm. um, in Lima, which is the capital of Peru, and um, always very exposed to, you know, a South American, you know, country. There's um, so much. We're so involved with food in so many ways. So growing growing up, I was always involved in, you know, all this incredible gastronomic experience, you know, without even knowing, really, you know, yeah. When we grow up in Peru, there's so, we're exposed to so many ingredients and ways of cooking and all this richness to it, you know. But um, I just took it for granted until I moved to America. Oh, really? Where, you know, um, even though I moved to New York, which is the capital of gastronomic in so many ways, um, I realized that there, there were um, all these limitations as of what to eat, you know. You could only get so much for 10 or 15 bucks. So um, that Prices was my... Prices are definitely... Yeah. High in New York. High in New York, that's for sure. Especially to get, you know, good food, you know, mm-hmm. expensive food. But uh, my childhood was great. Um, I I um, I was privileged enough to grow very close to the ocean. I mean, Lima is a capital right next to the ocean. So it was a very active kind of like childhood and growing up. Uh, food, I think, is the one thing that the whole world recognizes. And I think that food is the one thing that everybody can agree on. It's, right. a, it's the one thing everybody can talk about and enjoy, and enjoy no matter right. where you are in the world. Yeah. Without know? having to fight over any point exactly. of view, right? Exactly. Everybody's excited to hear about different cuisines and to try new things and to try other uh, types of foods. You know, it's the one thing that I think brings people together. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to see uh, how it's done in different parts of the world. And your family... Um, owns bakeries, right? Yeah. That's so I, I grew up in a, in a, you know, in a family that uh, managed restaurants mm-hmm. that, you know, owned restaurants. Um, and so I was exposed to food in every single way, um, you know, even from the beginning with, you know, just being Peruvian and, you know, we are the, catron- the gastronomic capital of South America. And, you know, my parents owning restaurants. So I was always exposed to food, you know, in every way. And uh, from the business perspective, aside of also, you know, from, you know, a food perspective. Why leave? You know, what you came to the States for what reason, basically? What was the impetus? Because why not stay and just run the family business and right. get involved? Because funny, you did that when you got here. When I got here. <laughs> but wh- why not stay in Peru and, and run, you know, continue in the family line and, and do that? So what I moved to New York there? to study singing and acting. That's, ah. you know, my original passion. That's how I moved. I came to New York when I was 18 years old. For school, I, I went to American Academy of Dramatic Arts um, to study singing and acting, and um, that's how you know. I mean, I, as soon as I stepped in New York, I was taken away. I was blown away by New York, and I was like, I need to live here. You know, I came here to audition, and um, I just knew that I was going to live in New York. Whatever I did, you know, if it was singing, acting, you know, food business, whatever it was, I wanted to be here. I know that you also are a successful model. How did how did that happen? So you came to study. Uh, arts and design and, and singing and, and acting, how did it become something about uh, modeling? Does, was that an easy transition or were you looking for it or it was an accident? So um, I went out, so I came here to study acting and when I was studying acting, um, I was, you know, walking the streets of New York one day 
And um, a very famous photographer discovered me. His name is Mario Testino. And, um, you know, I was... Just on the street? He I just was, came up to you yeah, and you said, hey, I, was walking in Soho I like the way you like, look. Wait, are you a model? I was like, well, you know, I've modeled in Peru, you know, for a couple of campaigns. He's like, you know what? Let me shoot a couple of Polaroids and, um, you know, we, we, we stay in touch. And that's how, you know, it happened. He shot a couple of Polaroids. This was on Monday. And then, you know, on Friday, I was flying to London to shoot Dolce & Gabbana campaign. Wow. So it was like surreal that's like that. It. But I feel like that's New York, you know, like New York gives you opportunities that, you know, don't happen anywhere else in the world. And that's one of the reasons why I always wanted to be here, you know, because there's so much about New York's energy that just make things happen. So that's how I kind of started in the modeling business and, you know, Starting with Dolce & Gabbana kind of opened so many doors. I'm sure. Um, and that's, you know, I, I really got into that career. Tell me about the modeling world. Is that, um, I mean, I would think even in modeling, it's not first time models don't get a campaign like Dolce & Gabbana off the top right. like that, right? Of course. I mean, it was really a shot of luck, right? Uh -huh. um, and it's a great world. I mean, modeling, you know, opens so many doors. You know, there's, it's a very, um, it's like a dualism in modeling because, you know, you are, you're celebrated by something that you're kind of born with, right? right Which yeah. is great. But um, because you're born with this and you're celebrated by your looks, it, very few models, and I don't want to generalize, but, you know, you know, the majority of them just, you know, stay with this, you know, kind of like ego trip mm -hmm. for as far as, you know, you grow up and then you realize that you're not booked anymore because there's a generation younger than you that are booking the jobs that you booked at some point. Um but in the positive side, I think it opens so many other doors. You know, it, it gets you to experience different countries in the world. You get to go to destinations that nobody goes. And um, you get to meet a lot of creative people that are, you know, at the top of their field. You know, you get to work with the best photographers, the best makeup artists, the best directors, you know, art directors. So you get to see a lot of points of view in different parts of the world. And I think that, you know, opens your mind for different possibilities and opens your your brain to new opportunities that you never thought that you would achieve, you know? Is modeling different for men versus women? I think it is, The yeah. business itself? Yeah, I think, you know, modeling is one of the only businesses where men make much less money than women, you know? In almost every other job in the world, men dominate the field. But women in modeling are, you know, the top of the field. And, um, you know, I, th I believe that women can make a career where, you know, they're just models. Um, I think guys... Um, it's a great kind of an opener for in general, but you definitely have to transition to something else. It's funny, you know, that that's a good point there. So, like you said, it's a very visual and very, I guess, I don't want to say shallow, but it, you're judged purely on your looks, obviously, because brands want you to sell their products, right? right. So they want to associate that with a specific type of look. So if Dolce Gabbana wants to sell a certain type of clothing, they want a certain type of face, and they're going to judge that. So, like you said, your your career span is very short. You know, you're only going to be, what, 22, 23 for a certain amount of time, and you're only going to be able exactly. to book those types of jobs for a certain amount of time. Right. So it's, it's smart to, to think of other ways to pivot and see where the future kind of can take you because you're not going to be doing that forever. Yes, that's one thing. And then, you know, I was lucky enough to also experience what the top of the field meant when I was 19, right? So, you know, I did Dolce Gabbana and then I did, you know, a lot of brands, you know, I don't know, Calvin Klein, Hugo Boss, all these big brands. So then I realized quickly, the, you know, that that was the top, you know, that, you know, me modeling for DNG or Hugo Boss didn't really make, you know, that was the top and that was it you know so there was nothing aside of that 
So I understood really quick at a very early age that I couldn't just be a model, you know, that I was a model and I could be a model, but I could also use that platform to build onto something else. And that's, this was the next question. So when did you pivot again and kind of go back to your roots? Is that what happened? You realized I need to find something else. Was it something about passion, something about that you can see yourself doing for a long time? And then you thought cooking again? Or? Well, so um, I have many passions, you know, and uh, cooking is one of them. But um, when I was modeling, I uh, experienced a certain type of recognition. You know, I was recognized by different, you know, companies clearly because I was the face of most of them. So um, I realized that in Peru specifically, um, I was known as, you know, the first male model to, you know, be, adult, be in a Dolce Gabbana ad. So I used that and I created a brand, a woman's line, even though I had very little, you know, experience in women's. Um, we in New York, we're one season ahead, right? Our summer is South America summer next year. Because of different hemispheres. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, now we, we're so globalized mm -hmm. that, you know, it's basically the same. But, you know, this was like 10 years ago. So at the time, we were still ahead. So I could, I, I could see what was selling and what wasn't selling. And I also... I was able to go into this incredible sales, you know, for different brands like H&M, Forever 21, like all these big brands that were not were not present in Peru, buy all this clothes, change the label and, you know, sell them in Peru and That's market amazing. up. So you were so you were modeling for these big brands. Not only were you getting paid to be a model, but you also were smart enough to realize that you can see the the trends that were about to come and maybe start exploding in South America right. that were happening in these other parts of the world. Yeah. And then you had access also to clothing from the buyers because you had access to the companies. Right, because I, exactly. That's what I mean. So, so you bought the clothing at a discount and then- Market uh, up in Peru. Market up in Peru and yeah. obviously design it for the trends that is about to come in Peru. So right. you kind of cornered that market. Totally. I mean, and, and I had four stores in Peru. I opened four stores and it was a very successful business just because, again, I was able to see, you know, what worked in America, you know, and what didn't work. So I just took what worked, uh, but also at a discounted price because by the time America was transitioning into fall, we were just transitioning into into spring. So it was a perfect, you know, switch. Um, and I did that for, you know, I had a stores for three years and then I finally sold the business because I was also going back and forth to Peru and I was like more in Peru than I wanted to be in Peru aside of like really living in New York. So I was like, okay, you know, I'm kind of done with this whole business of, you know, clothing. Um, let me let me really focus on New York. And um, I was hired as a men's fashion director at Macy's. I was the youngest men's fashion director ever. I was 23 at the time. Um, I had studied also at Fashion Institute of Technology. I had taken a couple of classes while I was doing all this, you know, buying and, you know, my stores. Um, and I finally started working at Macy's at a very American corporate, you know, company. Um, and even though I learned so many things about it, the most important thing I learned is that I never wanted to have a boss. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I was just about to say, that must be a huge difference from being your own boss and oh, yeah. running your own stores and your own designs to now you have to answer someone. So now you have to be at work at a certain time of day. You have to, you're kind of on a chain, so to speak, even though you're learning a lot, I'm sure right. it was exciting. Yeah, I mean, look, I learned so much, but you know, I learned a couple of things. First of all, I, I learned, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to have a boss. I learned that um, I am the type of person that, you know, don't I don't go step by step. I, you know, take four steps at a time. So in a corporate Amer company like that, you know, you, you know, you take a step and then, you know, you're promoted and then you wait another year and then you're promoted again. And then it's so I was like, I want to go faster. You know, I want to I, I don't want to wait so long. There's a lot of gatekeepers. Oh, totally. Yeah. So, um, 
so then I quit the company without even having an idea of what I wanted to do. I was like, okay, I just, I just don't want to be a fashion director anymore. And I didn't want to do anything with fashion at the time. So then um, I quit Macy's and I went to school for culinary. So I went to International Culinary Center in Soho. And that was just, uh, I mean, did you think about that? Did you think, all right, I love food and I, you know, my family's in it. I'm going to go back into it. Or was it just like, fuck it, I'm going to go back to school for for cooking like was it an, an intentful no, decision think, well you know I mean, again I've been exposed to food all my life my parents had, had all these businesses of food so for me it was very natural to kind of go into this passion right it made sense I also believe that you know in order to be a singer or an actor I didn't want to be a struggling actor or a struggling singer for so long right because the problem with you know this art career is that you have to invest so much money and sometimes you don't even see it back right but um if you have no money to invest then who is investing in it right mm. so i also thought of it like i wanted to secure my future in a way i wanted to be able to invest on my passions from my own money from my own company so i thought well you know if i study culinary and i open a restaurant i will be able to generate some cash flow in order to invest on other dreams that I have, but at least I have something that is giving me money every single day. So um, I went to culinary school always with the idea of opening a restaurant, right? So, you know, it's funny because, you know, you go to culinary school and I remember the first day of class we, we had, you know, it was like 20 people and, you know, everybody had to write down what was their idea of, you know, as soon as they graduated, you know. Most of the class, of course, you know, chose, you know, I wanted to work on a five star, on a three star Michelin restaurant or, you know, I want to, they had an idea of where they want to work, but nobody wanted to open a restaurant. And I was really, that really impacted me, you know, because that's really a way of thinking. Like in, in my, in my brain, I went to school to open a restaurant. Like that's the reason why I was there. So when I said, you know, I want to open a restaurant, I remember the teacher saying, well, I mean, that's a little, um, kind of like, you know, that's getting ahead of yourself i mean if you just want to graduate nobody graduates and opens a restaurant i was like well i will the first. <laughs> <laughs> well but that's funny because the mentality there i think it's it's also a little of the mindset of an entrepreneur of like you don't want a boss you don't want to work at a restaurant you don't want to work under another chef you want to open your own right and you already had in mind that you wanted to do that right i'm curious as to like when you were back home in peru did you you said you were always around food and cooking and you learned business from your from your parents. Right. So going to culinary school, did you learn anything? I mean, it was a different style of cooking or biz- do they teach business management, restaurant management? They don't. They don't. And I, they do, but I didn't take the class. I took culinary art, mm-hmm. which is the, the art of cooking. Also, I came from, you know, four or five years of really hardcore business from every single sense, you know, from my stores in Peru, from Macy's in the corporate world. So I really also wanted to take a break and, you know, connect to my art, you know, self. And that was, you know, uh, the expression of art as in cooling, uh, as in cooking. Um, so the reason why I went to culinary school is really because I wanted to learn, you know, kind of like what happens in the kitchen. Even though now that I own a restaurant, I don't know if it was the most important aspect, you know, to open a restaurant to go to culinary school since I'm not even, even in the kitchen anymore. Um, but I think you... It just also gave me the confidence, you know what, I went to school now, I am ready to open a restaurant in New York. And, I mean, that's totally different worlds from, from modeling to restaurateur, you know. the the It's almost a complete opposite. Right. I mean, in the kitchen, I mean, I I worked in restaurants all through college. I worked, that's how I paid for college. I was a waiter, so mm-hmm. I was in the back of the house, I was in the front of the house. So being on a line in, in the kitchen is very... It's a, it takes a certain type of person, right. or even to be in, in the restaurant world. It's very brutal. It's very like, you know, you have to sacrifice a lot of time and right. effort and you're in there and you're working your ass up and you're on your feet all day. It's almost a juxtaposition completely different to 
being a model and standing and, and oh, kind totally. of getting a lot of attention and photographed and you know you're the kind of the center of things and doing very little and doing very little. <laughs> yeah i mean i don't want to i don't want to take away from a model i'm sure there are challenges no, of course but are, um but it's a completely but different it's a very easy job let's yeah. put it that way <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> and it's completely different from from being uh putting your paying your dues and, and putting your time in the kitchen um can you talk a little bit about that like was it a surprise was it or you already had done that before from in Peru. Was it not a big deal? Well, no. I mean, you know, the thing is, I always, I mean, I always knew I wanted to open a restaurant, but I always also knew that I didn't necessarily want to work in a kitchen. And that's a, that's very, you know, th those are very different fields. You know, when you are a chef, you have to be in the kitchen at all times. You know, like as when the restaurant opens and when the restaurant closes, mm -hmm. you are there. Um, I, when I opened the restaurant, I kind of conceptualized the whole idea, but I also knew because of school that I didn't want to be in the kitchen all the time. So, you know, I created their menu, I created all this, you know, all these recipes and also trained the people. But I always thought that in order for you to grow, you have to remove yourself of the equation of the operational to every day, day by day, because otherwise you won't be able to grow. And, you know, that was a very kind of clear idea that I had at the beginning. So since I started, like I removed myself of the operation, basically Baby Brasa, which is the restaurant that I own, operates with or without me regardless, right? If I'm there, it's great because, you know, there's, I mean, and I'm there all the time, but I'm not necessarily in order for the restaurant to open or to close or to keep going, you know? It functions without it you. It functions without me. And I think that's the most important thing because thanks to that, I am able to grow or expand or think about franchise or, you know, do other things. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what type of systems do you have to put in place for that? Because a lot of, I think I think you're right, I think a lot of restaurateurs like maybe are need to be hands-on so much that they kind of live and die in the kitchen and maybe don't realize that if there's another way to do it, you know, right. like what kind of steps or process do you use to make sure that it runs without you? Well, so first you have to train the, your people, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you have an idea of what you want to do, of what your brand is, but, you know, they need to understand this as if it was theirs. So being clear about your brand, about your vision, about your mission is very important. So training your staff is everything. And then also, you know, it's really tough, but in New York, it's easier, I think, than other cities where you find really capable people. You know, in New York, we're surrounded by, you know, the top of the field in every single, you know, kind of like area of expertise. So um, I have an incredible team of people, and that's really what, Baby Brasa is really, it's a, it's a very good team of people that are trained enough. So I think training is one of the most important things. And also being able to be a control freak, which I am, but understanding that, you know, you can, in order for you to grow, you cannot control every single step of the way. So you have to delegate. And I think that's one of the most important things, you know, in order to grow is to be able to delegate work to your colleagues in order to for them to do what your vision is. Tell me a little bit more about Baby Brasa. How, how is it different? I mean, New York is littered with restaurants and it's also littered with failed restaurants. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, how do you stand out in the sea of restaurants, sea of amazing restaurants? You know, um, you can't go two blocks without finding a great place to eat. How does Baby Brasa kind of stick out amongst the others? So um, I, I, I have to disagree with you. I don't think New York is, you know, I think lately New York is offering really bad food. Really? Yeah. I think it's cheap. It's not, you know, cheap food, you know, not good. Um, I think the times where New York had incredible food are kind of gone. You know, I mean, like when I moved to New York, you had incredible restaurants all over the place. Now I feel, you know, you have a lot of like functional restaurants like, you know, Dig Ins and Sweet Greens, which I love, you know, because they're good, they're healthy, they're fast. 
but um, I'm very disappointed with the with the food. And that's really how I opened Baby Rasa because Baby Rasa is an organic Peruvian restaurant. Um, we're the first organic Peruvian in the city, and I think in in America. Um, I you know the the idea of a chef is a guy that you know doesn't care take care of himself you know body wise Mm -hmm. he doesn't care what he eats he just wants to eat delicious even if it's double reduced fat cream it doesn't care it doesn't matter you know when i opened baby russ i was really i was a model i was i'm still a model but you know at the time i was really hardcore modeling so i really had to take care of what i ate but at the same time coming from culinary school i wanted to make sure that it was delicious you know so it's kind of like that mix you know it's a it's mixing organic, you know, really good and healthy food with a way to cook it that's not necessarily double fried or double reduced cream, but it's still delicious, right? So I think that's the first thing that how we stand out, you know, we're healthy food that is delicious. Um, And I think also, you know, just going back to the point that, you know, there's a lot of great places in New York. I believe you did. You have to create an experience. You know, in New York, you know, you see a lot of places that, you, you know, businesses are very tricky, right? But I believe that now with you know social media and the amount of content there is and you know all these graphics you need to make sure that you know when somebody comes to your restaurant it's not about just the food or it's not about just the ambience it has to be about the ambience the food the service the vibe and create an overall experience when when you go there or to you know in this case to baby brasa it's like you're thinking oh my god i'm going to be brasa because it makes me feel great you know either because you eat great or because you know there's live music or because you're in the middle of the west village and you're centered whatever it is you know i feel the experience component is a very important one right now in, in every business i think you're right i think um going to because it's a whole experience going out to eat i get excited when i'm about to go right. out to eat and when with my wife and we have to decide where we're going to go and we take in all these considerations: is the food good? Is the ambience good? Is the service good? So, it's 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 you're right in that it's about the experience. I think there's a lot of also nowadays like reviews are everything, and everybody oh, lives yeah, and yeah, dies totally. by Yelp. Yeah. And like everybody on Yelp thinks they're some sort of culinary expert to like yeah. they comment on the most trivial things, and it's it's not like you're like a James Beard Award, right, like right, you right. know. So it's 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 and it's almost like you you have to kind of uh, tread this fine line. And make sure that you appeal on on many aspects You're right, of it. Right, of course. You know? um, do you play the Yelp wars? Like, do you? Yeah, I mean, you know, as as a as a as a restaurant owner, you cannot um, not play it. Basically, mm-hmm. you just have to be in that game. Um, it's very frustrating because you know most of these people, very few of them know what they're talking about. Exactly. And when they know, you know, you know, when they review and they know what you're talking about, you can tell. But um. Most of the people, you know, they just want to be, you know, there's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, they give you a rating. They have the power to give you a rating, a star or whatever. So, um, I mean, you have to play with it. Thank God we have really good ratings. So that's good. <laughs> but um, there's always, you know, a couple of them that are like, you know, the worst right. to review and you just have to just deal with it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I'm sure it can be very frustrating. I want to talk a little bit about, um, like you said, social media and the online world and how that plays a role. I think you did something very smart. You know, you created your YouTube channel, and I'm, I'm not sure how this came about. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to assume here, like, you, you took two of the very smart things. You obviously, for your job, have a uh, have to maintain a physique and be healthy, and you appeal to that. And you also took your food, which is amazing food, and you combine this, what now they're calling you the shirtless chef. Yeah, the naked uh, chef. Uh, the naked <laughs> chef. And you created videos of you creating different, you know, types of food, different dishes, and you do it shirtless, and you show off your physique. Right. And you got this, they went viral, and you got a right. lot of attention. I mean, you showed up on Ellen, on Kelly and Ryan, and these uh, other things. Wendy. Was that, like, uh, intentional? Like, were you like, I need to... I need to stick out and I need to 
use this to kind of bring traffic to Baby Brasa, so I'm going to do this? Um, so it was intentional in the fact that, you know, I said, well, if this works, Baby Brasa's logo should be on the video, right? Mm-hmm. Because the thing with, you know, online, you never know if it's going to go viral, really. I mean, yeah, there's no secret formula. There's no secret formula. And funny enough, you know, the, the video that went viral, which is a chia pudding video, is, you know, now that, you know, I've seen it now so many times, and I, I think it's genius. What we were, you know, me and my producer, I work with a very um, important uh, company here called Contento. They create content for different platforms and they're extremely creative. But at the time when we were doing the video, we didn't think about, you know, me with the underwear or like, you know, we just thought, let's do shirtless. And then, you know, all these little things that made the video viral were non intentional. But what was intentional was, you know, the healthy eating. Um, the shirtless pictures and the, you know the shirtless way of cooking, and also um, kind of like putting, making sure that the baby Russell logo was in the video. So if if it ever went viral, it was gonna go viral with the logo. So we were ready ready for it if it if it happened. So you were you designed it for that. Yeah. And did you see a huge after you know? The way videos went viral, I think you had like a half a million views on that chia pudding. I, I, um, I think it's like 10 million. 10 million. No, <laughs> I was looking at the YouTube count and it's insane. And it's insane. did you see like traffic to the restaurant from that? Well, yeah, you know, I I, I don't know if traffic to the restaurant, I think. Um, or more brand awareness. Me, yeah, it's definitely more brand awareness. Um, it definitely kind of like gave me more recognition as, you know, a, a chef in a way. And, you know, that opened other doors like, you know, Ellen, Kelly and Ryan and Wendy Williams and all these shows. Um, so I think, you know, in general it worked, you know, but um, I don't know if necessarily like you could track people coming to a restaurant because they've seen a Chia seed pudding video. Mm-hmm. But it did something for your personal brand. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, was... it made it grow and it definitely like, you know, made my name pop also more. I was in covers of newspapers for a long time. And also the fact that I was a model before, you know, it was the first time that, you know, a chef looked that good. I mean, because, you know, for the longest time, chefs don't care, you know. You're so right. it was kind of like, you know, also um, putting in, you know, in, in, in this, I don't know, like judging also a different point of view, you know. I think it was a smart move because you used what worked for you in your niche and you made it uh, work for your brand. Right. And I think that was most, I don't think most restaurateurs think that way or entrepreneurs in general sometimes don't think that way of like, how do I bring more exposure to my brand and, 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 and lift that? Right. And what is that my, what tools do I have? What am I, because I think everybody thinks automatically they want to be number one at everything. So if you have an album, they want to be number one in whatever, right. uh, the top of all of the music or the right. best restaurant or all restaurants. When you think about it, you can find success in your niche. Right, totally. Like you have a specific niche and you don't have to worry about being the number one top everything. You can be, top of your niche and be very successful in that. Also, and right. then also, if you are the top of, of number one in your niche, that makes you also, it's easier to be the number one later on, yeah. you know, because you've already conquered, you know, a solid group of people. Right. And I think doing that is is very smart. So kudos to you. Thank you for and that. The, and the shirtless yeah. uh, chia pudding. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, can you talk to me a little bit about, you have a, a musical career. You're a singer-songwriter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just released a new single. I'm pronou- excuse me if I'm mispronouncing it's it. Okay. Mi Acelera. You got it. I got it. Mi Acelera. <laughs> um, yeah. Mi Acelera. So tell me a little bit uh, about how music came into your life and how you you put this together. So again, like I, it's, this is really my original passion, right? I moved to New York to study singing and acting. And um that's how I moved here. That was my my first kind of like, you know, idea of what I was going to be growing up, you know, when I was 18 years old. So, and it's also, it's it's funny, you know, because there's Steve Jobs says something that's very interesting, that, you know, that you, you're able to connect the dots 
later on, right? You know, because when you look back, you're able to connect them. And it's funny because now, you know, I have a restaurant that, you know, is generating a cash flow in order for me to jump onto other dreams, you know? And it's it's much easier for me right now to be able to be a singer, right? Because I have the means in order to invest because there's so much money involved in music or in anything you really do, you know? But um, it's smart. I'm sorry to interrupt, but so many people want to be, you know, wealthy or famous on the one thing that they love to do when, and they put all their effort in that and they, when it doesn't, you know, they become a starving artist, you know, they, right. and then they can't do it. Like, for example, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a millionaire before he was ever an actor. Right. He invested in real estate right. before he was even any, anywhere near a movie and became a millionaire through real estate and working different jobs. Right. Then he, he was able to choose the types of movies he wanted to do. Exactly. He wasn't a struggling actor to just do it just to get paid. Right, just to and get paid. I think paid. you did the same thing. It's so, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think it's a, I mean, I hate, you know, I've seen in New York, you know, we're surrounded by struggling actors or, or actresses or artists struggling in general. Anything. Uh, struggling anything really but especially in the art world you know and it's a very tough world to be in because you have to be inspired you have to be on your feet you have to look good and on top of all of this you're struggling right so um when i mean clearly also i have a passion for food and you know for me like creating this restaurant and you know also later on developing this chain is a very important piece of my life but now that i have some stability financially i am able to conquer this dream you know which is you know singing so i just released a single it's called me aceleras it's available on every single platform so you're so we you can know, download on spotify, spotify itunes, Google, iTunes it's everything all out there. yeah and just search Miasalera or Frank Noriega, yeah, and then you'll see. Um, there's also a video on YouTube um, that I shot with this super top model, Shanina Shake. She's a Victoria's Secret model. I saw. We shot in London. Very nice. Oh yeah, <laughs> kudos on the choice there. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I mean, now I'm I'm trying this out. I'm you know I'm, I've always been really linked to music. You know, growing up. Um, and, you know, it was my passion again, moving here. So now I'm doing it, and it's a very um, interesting business because. Overall, you know, the most important thing about music is even though it's a, you know, it's an artistic career, it is a business and it's a very strong business. So very I am too. very competitive for sure. I mean, in New York, I think everything is competitive, right? Yeah. So, but it's definitely a very tough business. So, and I'm, I'm kind of like stepping in very slowly and, you know, seeing how it works. I'm, I have my second single coming out in a couple of weeks from now. So um, we'll see w where this goes, but I'm really excited. That's awesome. That's really cool. Uh, and I think it takes a lot of work. Talk to me a little bit about work ethic. I think... So many people nowadays, especially entrepreneurs or uh, maybe the younger generations, millennials or young or anybody really, they they it's almost like they are surprised when they look and see there's a track record leading to this. Like you, be, you find success and they say, how did you do it? Well, I did this and I did this and I put time here and I put time there. And so many people expect it just happen. You right. know? And I think it takes a certain type of personality and mentality and work ethic to get there. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about like, I mean, you've done a lot and obviously, you know, hard work pays off. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, my brain never stops. You know, I never stop thinking. I have to stop it with clonopin at night in order to get <laughs> sleep, you know, but it's really tough, you know, because you're always working and it's not necessarily physical work, but it's, it's for in my case, it's a lot of brain work. Um, I also believe in the power of visualization. I do it every day. And that's also, um, when I talk about brain work, it's, you know, it's you're training your mind in order to achieve something in 
in your brain, which later on materializes. You know, I, I do these visualizations for 20 minutes every day. And it's kind of like, it's kind of working out, you know, because sometimes you're exhausted, you're at home, you know, you don't want to visualize, you just want to, I don't know, hop into Hulu and watch, you know, right. hands You just want to turn your brain yeah, off, exactly. You know? But um, I do it every, every, every day and, you know, I, I've become really strict about it because the more that I do it, the more I see, you know, these things materializing in my life. So, um, I'm, and, and I also believe that, you know, aside of the work ethic for sure, I mean, you have to work in order to get the things that you want. I also believe that you have to be, you, you kind of have to um, believe in that things will happen. You know, like there has to be some type of faith that when you have a project in your brain and you want to materialize it, things will happen for you. I mean, magically, you know, like, you know, you have a star, you, there, there's a shot of luck, however you want to call it, but you have to believe that you're able to do it at some point and that will become, you know, a reality. It's having the mindset, the right sure. mindset. I think it all plays in t- together, the visualization, the mindset helps manifest the success. Totally. Because also, if you're in this mindset, you immediately are positive about everything you do, right? Because you want to make things happen. So by you being positive, you find different outlets. You, you know, find different solutions to problems that, you know, arise because everything is a problem. And problems are constantly arising in every single way, shape, or form. Even if it's employees, if it's, you know, the law, if it's whatever, you know? So um, if you have a positive approach, you're always seeing the solution more than the problem itself. How do you combat the, I mean, we all have that voice in our head that tells us we can't do it, that tells us you're going to fail, don't even bother, there's too much competition, I don't even know why you're bothering this. How do you combat that voice? How do you, you know, focus on the positive aspect and the visualization and combat the, the negative voice that everyone's got in their head? So I believe that everybody fails, right? And we all fail. So for me, the the earlier you fail, the better, right? Because then, you know, you can move on to something else. If that didn't work, you know, then you can move on to something else. And if that did work, then you can move into the next step of what that realm means. So I believe that, you know, you have to fail early. The earlier you fail, the, the more chances you have of doing other things. You know, I, I hear a lot of, and I'm a doer also. That's a very important thing about, you know, that I preach and I believe in. You know, I see a lot of people saying, for example, oh my God, you know, I wish I could study whatever, acting, or I wish I could take a class. I always wanted to do improv. Well, if you've always wanted to do improv, then fucking enroll in a class and do it. Right. You know, that's it. There's no, like, you know, I wish. Like, if you wish, you do it. So um, I believe that if you're, you know, we're all going to fail, and that's, like, that's for granted. You know, that that's going to happen for sure. The earlier you fail, the better. I think it's a good point. Failure, I think, is a process, and I think it's necessary to success. Oh, Totally. Failure, uh, you learn from failure, you're humbled by failure, you understand what's not working, you understand what is working. Can you tell me a couple of examples or any, maybe just one, you know, where you failed at something, like it did not go as you planned and you thought, wow, this is it, but it actually ended up being maybe something that put you on the path of success or something that ended up being the, it was a failure and a negative thing, but it was the best thing that ever happened? Well, so, I mean, a very clear example of that is, you know, when I opened the restaurant, I thought that you know, I opened the restaurant of just rotisserie chicken, right? So basically I had a very clear idea of my mind, in my mind that uh, it was going to be Peruvian chicken with four sides and a salad. And, you know, and I opened the very small location on the Lower East Side and then I opened the bigger location in the West Village, right? The worst location village has 120 seats, you know? So it was a whole restaurant and the Lower East Side, it worked amazing. But then when I transferred this concept to a West Village, which is, you know, we're in the corner of 7th and Perry, right next to very good restaurants like Morandi and all this, you know, kind of high-end restaurants, 
I real, you know, I thought like I had this incredible concept in my mind. I was so confident about it. But then, you know, I started realizing that people don't want to eat chicken every single day, you know, for how, how like what, what if they want to eat fish? What if you want to eat chicken, but I want to eat, you know, steak. And I was reluctant to change for about two months. And, you know, thank God I was, you know, fast enough to change and to offer a very expanded menu. But that's a very clear idea of what didn't work. And it was a failure. So my concept of rotisserie chicken was a failure. And thanks to that, I was able to incorporate Peruvian food. But, you know, funny enough, I am making three times more money than I was making when I was doing rotisserie chicken because I, I now can sell fish or steak, which is much more expensive than selling chicken. So when I was selling chicken only, even though it was a faster operation, my markup was not as high as now as it is as it is now. So um, that's one of the things, you know, you fail early, you know, you open the restaurant, you know, and even if the restaurant didn't work, you know, I believe that, you know, say, for example, I failed in the, in the restaurant business. I'm young enough to know that you know, the, the restaurant business for me is not, an, it's not an option because I already did it and it didn't work. So I can move on to something else that I can explore. So I believe that, you know, sometimes failure works in the positive way where, you know, you react to change and then, you know, you thank God you make more money. But sometimes if it's, that's not the case, it gives you the room to, to try something else. Fail forward. Fail forward. Fail forward. Exactly. Fail into success. Yeah. So. Um, uh, great. So uh, I have a couple more questions. So yeah. If uh, going back on the process of failure and, and learning and things, if you can go back five years ago and talk to Franco five years ago, uh, what advice would you give him? What would you say, or wh- would you change anything? Basically, would you say, "Don't do this, do that," or follow up on this, or "Don't worry so much about that"? Um, is there anything that you would say to yourself? Well, I mean. I'm very happy to like things have, you know, how things have turned around in my life. I love the fact that I'm always changing and I have so many experiences and I rely on my experiences. So I like that. But um, there's not a lot I would change, really. I mean, I'm I'm happy like how things turned around, but I would definitely be, you know, talk to the Franco that was a little kind of like too strong on, you know, people sometimes, you know, at the beginning of my career. You know, when I, you know, it's very difficult to be an entrepreneur. It's very difficult to be a businessman because you're the only one who really truly understands your point of view because it's yours, right? So, um, at the beginning, I was hard on, on, on trying transferring my point of view to my employees. You know, I was very strict in the way that I do it. Now, you know, I understand that, um, you are more of a team, you know, you, you, you are your team. So I understand the value of what, you know, my employees mean to me right now. So I would definitely, you know, wouldn't be as harsh as I was before and I would be more loving, which I am right now. So your leadership, your leadership skills yeah. would be a little bit yeah. more uh, smooth. smooth. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally for our audience, who is an audience of struggling entrepreneurs trying to find their way you know, um, if someone wants to be a restaurateur like you are, can you give maybe three points to them? Tell them, like, focus more on this or that or maybe uh, worry about your location or your, your yeah. where you get your goods or, like, is there something that, that you think someone new who wouldn't know should know? Yeah, so I would, um, I mean, if it was three points, I would definitely let them, I mean, under, get a deal, right, on your rent, 
that's number one important thing because that's the thing that knocks you off out of business, right? So make sure that wherever you're going, make sure you get a deal. It, we're in a point, at least in New York right now, that there's so much retail available that you're able to get a deal almost in every single neighborhood. So get a deal, get a good rent, and get a good you know lease. Of, negotiate well. Yeah, yeah, negotiate well. That's number one. Number two would be, I mean, yeah, get a good location, but that's kind of like, you know, get a deal with a good location. But um, a very important thing that I'm really practicing now is, you know, as a restaurant, you are trying to drag customers in. But I'm thinking the opposite now. I'm trying to go to the customer. So instead of bringing him in the restaurant, I'm trying to go where he is. So just a very good example is, you know, this company Fuda that is delivering food to you guys. So we've partnered with companies like that where we are satellite from the restaurant. So I would encourage you guys to really try to bring the product to your customer, whatever that is. I mean, if you, even if it's a restaurant, even if it's something else, make sure you, that you're not waiting for the customer or trying to bring them in, but going to them and making sure your product is hand-delivered to the person that could be your potential client. So there's no excuse for them to say no. Exactly. And also, like, you're kind of imposing mm-hmm. to them, you know? Like, if, you know, you're bringing it to them, so the only thing they have to do is put it in their mouth, in the case. They don't have to take a cab go to the restaurant, find the restaurant, take a reservation, sit down. You're eliminating the whole process. And if you believe in your food and if it's so good, you know, once they eat it, they will go to your restaurant on their own. But, you know, getting that first initial contact with the client is a very important step, I think. Excellent. Franco, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. Where can we find out more about you? Um, well, so you can follow me on Instagram at, at Franco Norhal. Um, at Franco Norha uh-huh. and then um, you can come at the restaurant it's a baby brass it's located in the West Village 173 7th Avenue South um, and if you come saying that you've heard the podcast I'll make sure to buy your Pisco Sour oh excellent <laughs> you heard that we're going um, thank you so much Franco thank you appreciate so much. your time good luck with everything and all your endeavors in the future thank you very much Thanks. this is 1.37pm if you want to own the future start this minute live from the Barkhart is a gallery media production.